Chapter 31 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 31. All the seven were there, as at the first time, masked, mute, impenetrable as phantoms. The eighth personage, who had then addressed Consuelo, and who seemed to be the interpreter of the council, and the initiator of the adepts, spoke to her in these terms. Consuelo, you have already undergone some trials from which you have come forth to your glory and to our satisfaction. We can grant you our confidence, and we are about to prove it to you. Wait, said Consuelo, you think me without blame, and I am not. I have disobeyed you. I have been out of the retreat which you assigned to me. From curiosity? No. Can you tell us what you have learned? What I have learned is entirely personal to myself. I have among you a confessor to whom I can and wish to reveal it. The old man whom Consuelo invoked rose and said, I know all. The fault of this child is trifling. She knows nothing of which you wish her to remain ignorant. The confession of her feelings will be between herself and me. In the meanwhile, profit by this hour. Let what she is to know be revealed to her without delay. I hold myself responsible for her in all things. The initiator resumed his discourse after having turned towards the tribunal and received a sign of assent. Listen to me attentively, said he to her. I speak to you in the name of those whom you see here assembled. It is their spirit, and, so to speak, their breath which inspires me. It is their doctrine which I am about to lay before you. The distinctive characteristic of the religions of antiquity is to have two faces, one external and public, one internal and secret. One is the spirit, the other the form or the letter. Behind the material and gross symbol, the profound sense, the sublime idea. Egypt and India, great types of the ancient religions, mothers of pure doctrines, present in the highest state this duality of aspect, a necessary and fatal form of the infancy of society and of the misery attached to the development of the genius of man. You have recently learned in what consisted the great mysteries of Memphis and Eleusis, and you now know why the divine, political, and social science, concentrated with the triple religious, military and industrial power in the hands of the hierophants, did not descend so far as the lowest classes of those ancient societies. The Christian idea, enveloped in the word of the revealer in more transparent and pure symbols, came into the world in order to bring down to the souls of the people the knowledge of truth and the light of faith. But the theocracy, an inevitable abuse of religions formed in trouble and in danger, soon endeavored once more to veil the doctrine, and in veiling altered it. 
idolatry reappeared with the mysteries, and in the painful development of Christianity, we saw the hierophants of apostolic Rome lose, by divine punishment, the divine light, and fall again into the errors into which they wished to plunge mankind. The development of human intelligence then proceeded in a sense entirely contrary to the advance of the past. The temple was no longer, as in ancient times, the sanctuary of truth. Superstition and ignorance, gross symbols, the dead letter, sat upon the altars and the thrones. The spirit at last descended into the classes too long debased. Poor monks, obscure doctors, humble penitents, virtuous apostles of primitive Christianity, made of the secret and persecuted religion an asylum for unknown truth. They endeavored to initiate the people into the religion of equality, and, in the name of St. John, they preached a new gospel, that is to say, a new interpretation, more free, more hardy, and more pure of the Christian revelation. You know the history of their labors, of their trials, of their martyrdom. You know the sufferings of the people, their ardent inspirations, their terrible outbursts, their deplorable weakness, their stormy awakenings. And through so many efforts by turns frightful and sublime, their heroic perseverance to escape from darkness and to find the way of God. The time is near when the veil of the temple shall be rent forever, and when the crowd shall take by storm the sanctuaries of the holy ark. Then symbols will disappear, and the entrances to truth will no longer be guarded by the dragons of religious and monarchical despotism. Every man will be able to walk in the path of light and to come nigh to God with all the power of his soul. No longer will anyone say to his brother, Be ignorant and humble yourself. Close your eyes and receive the yoke. Everyone will, on the contrary, be able to ask of his brother the help of his eye, of his heart and of his arm, to penetrate into the arcanas of the sacred science. But that time has not yet come, and at this hour we salute only the dawn trembling upon the horizon. The time of secret religion still exists. The work of mystery is not yet accomplished. We are still here, enclosed in the temple, busied in forging arms to drive away the keepers, who interpose between the people and ourselves, and compelled still to keep our doors closed and our words secret, that no one may come and wrest from our hands the holy ark, saved with so much difficulty, and reserved for the community of mankind. You are now received into the new temple, but that temple is still a fortress which has held out during ages for liberty without being able to win it. The war is around us. We wish to be liberators. We are as yet only combatants. You come here to receive the fraternal communion, the standard of salvation, the sign of liberty and perhaps to perish on the breach in the midst of us. Such is the destiny which you have accepted. You will perhaps fall without having seen the pledge of victory wave over your head. 
It is still in the name of St. John that we call men to the crusade. It is still a symbol that we invoke. We are the heirs of the Jonites of former times, the unknown, mysterious, and persevering continuers of Wycliffe, of John Huss, and of Luther. We wish, as they wished, to free the human race. But like them, we are not free ourselves, and like them, we perhaps march to execution. Still, the combat has changed its ground, and the arms their nature. We brave, still, the overshadowing rigor of the laws. We still expose ourselves to prescription, to misery, to captivity, even to death. For the methods of tyranny are always the same. But our methods are no longer an appeal to physical revolt, to the bloody preaching of the cross and the sword. Our war is entirely intellectual, as is our mission. We address ourselves to the mind. We act by the mind. It is not by armed force that we can overthrow governments now organized and supported upon all the means of brutal force. We wage against them a war more slow, more silent, and more profound. We attack them at the heart. We shake their bases by destroying the blind faith and the idolatrous respect which they seek to inspire. We cause to penetrate everywhere, and even into courts, even into the troubled and fascinated minds of princes and kings, what no one dares any longer to call the poison of philosophy. We destroy all their charms. We discharge, from the height of our fortress, all the hot shot of burning truth and implacable reason upon the altars and the thrones. We shall conquer. Do not doubt it. In how many years and how many days? We do not know. But our enterprise dates from such remote antiquity. It has been conducted with so much faith, stifled with so little success, resumed with so much ardor, pursued with so much enthusiasm that it cannot fail. It has become immortal in its nature, like the immortal good it has resolved to win. Our ancestors began it, and each generation has hoped to finish it. If we did not also hope a little ourselves, perhaps our zeal would be less fervent and less efficacious. But if the spirit of doubt and of irony, which now governs the world, should succeed in proving to us by its cold calculations and its abusive reasonings that we pursue a dream which can be realized only in several centuries. Our conviction in the holiness of our cause would not be shaken, and because we should labor with a little more effort and a little more sorrow, we should not the less labor for the men of the future. There is between us and the men of the past and the generations yet unborn a religious bond, so close and so firm that we have almost stifled in ourselves the selfish and personal portion of human individuality. This is what the vulgar cannot comprehend, and yet there is in the pride of the nobility something which resembles our hereditary religious enthusiasm. Among the great, many sacrifices are made for glory, in order to be worthy of their ancestors and to bequeath much honor to their posterity. Among us, architects of the Temple of Truth, many sacrifices are made to virtue in order to continue the edifice of our masters and to form laborious apprentices. 
We live by the mind and by the heart in the past, in the future, and in the present all at once. Our predecessors and our successors are as much us as we ourselves are. We believe in the transmission of life, of sentiments, of generous instincts and souls, as the patricians believe in that of an excellence of race in their veins. We go still further. We believe in the transmission of the life, of the individuality of the soul, and of the human person. We feel ourselves fatally and providentially called to continue the work we have already dreamed, always pursued, and advanced from age to age among us. There are even some among us who have carried their contemplation of the past and of the future so far almost to lose all notion of the present. That is the sublime fever. That is the ecstasy of our believers and our saints. For we have our saints, our prophets, perhaps also our exaltés and visionaries. But whatever be the wandering or the sublimity of their transports, we respect their inspiration. And among us, Albert the ecstatic and the seer has found only brothers full of sympathy for his sorrows and of admiration for his enthusiasm. We have faith also in the conviction of the counter Saint Germain, considered an impostor or deranged in the world. Though his reminiscences of a past inaccessible to human memory have a character more calm, more precise, and more inconceivable still than the ecstasies of Albert, they have also a character of good faith and a lucidity at which it is impossible for us to scoff. We count among ourselves many other exaltés, mystics, poets, men of the people, philosophers, artists, ardent sectarians rallied around the banners of various chiefs, poemists, theosophites, Moravians, Hernhutters, Quakers, even pantheists, Pythagoreans, Seraphicists, Illuminates, Joannites, Templars, Malarians, Jacobites, etc. All these ancient sects, in spite of their having no longer the development which they possessed at the time of their unfolding, are nonetheless existing and even but a little modified. The characteristic of our epic is to reproduce at once all those forms which the innovating or reforming genius has given by turns in past ages to the religious and philosophical idea. We therefore recruit our adepts in these various groups without requiring an absolute identity of precepts, which is impossible in the time in which we live. It is enough for us to find in them an artificial destruction in order to call them into our ranks. All our organizing science consists in choosing our builders only among spirits superior to the disputes of schools, in whom the passion of truth, the thirst of justice, and the instinct of a pure morality prevail over the habits of family and the rivalries of sect. Besides, it is not so difficult, as is thought, to cause to work in concert very dissimilar elements. Those dissimilarities are more apparent than real. At bottom, all these heretics, it is with respect I use that name, agree upon the principal point that of destroying intellectual and physical tyranny, or at least of protesting against it. 
the antagonisms which have hitherto retarded the fusion of all these generous and useful resistances come from self-love and from jealousy, vices inherent to the human condition, fatal and inevitable counterpoises to all progress in humanity. By sparing these susceptibilities, by permitting each communion to keep its master, its institutions, and its rights, we can constitute, if not a society, at least an army. And I have told you we are still only an army, marching to the conquest of a promised land, of an ideal society. At the stage in which human nature still is, there are so many shades of character in individuals, so many different degrees in the conception of truth, so many varied aspects, ingenious manifestations of the rich nature which created the human race, that it is absolutely necessary to leave to each the conditions of his life and the elements of his power of action. Our work is grand, our task immense. We wish not only to found a universal empire upon a new order and upon equitable basis. It is a religion that we wish to reconstruct. We feel, moreover, that the one is impossible without the other. Thus we have two modes of action, one all material to undermine and cause to crumble the old world by criticism, by examination, even by sneering by Voltairianism and all connected with it. The formidable concourse of all wills and of all strong passions hurries our march in that direction. Our other mode of action is all spiritual. It is to build up the religion of the future. The elect in intelligence and virtue assist us in this incessant labor of our thought. The work of the invisibles is a counsel which the persecution of the official world prevents from assembling publicly, but which deliberates without relaxation, and which labors under the same inspiration in all points of the civilized world. Mysterious communications carry the seed in the air as fast as it ripens, sow it in the field of humanity as fast as we clear it from the husk. It is in this last subterranean labor that you can be associated. We can tell you how, when you shall have accepted it. I accept it, replied Consuelo in a firm voice, and raising her arms to heaven in the form of an oath. Be not in haste to promise, woman of generous instincts, of an enterprising soul. Perhaps you have not all the virtues which such your mission would require. You have traversed the world. You have already gathered therein the notions of prudence, of what is called savoir-vivre, discretion, the spirit of conduct. I do not so flatter myself, replied Consuelo, smiling with a modest pride. Well, you have there learned at least to doubt, to discuss, to sneer, to suspect. To doubt, perhaps. Take from me the doubt which was not in my nature and which has made me suffer, and I will bless you. Take from me especially the doubt of myself, which would strike me with impotence. We cannot relieve you of doubt except by developing our principles to you. As to giving to you material guarantees of our sincerity and our power, we shall not do so otherwise than we have hitherto done. Let the services we have rendered be sufficient for you. We will always assist you on occasion, 
but we will not associate you in the mysteries of our thought and of our action, except according to that part of action which we give to yourself. You will not know us. You will never see our features. You will never know our names, unless the great interest of the cause compels us to infringe the law, which renders us unknown and invisible to our disciples. Can you submit and trust blindly to men who will never be to you other than abstract beings, living ideas, mysterious aids and counsels? A vain curiosity only could impel me to wish to know you otherwise. I hope that childish feeling will never enter my bosom. We have no reference to curiosity, but to mistrust. Yours would be well-founded, according to the logic and the prudence of the world. A man is answerable for his actions. His name is a pledge or a warning. His reputation supports or belies his acts or his projects. Do you reflect that you can never compare the conduct of any one of us, in particular with the precepts of the order? You must believe in us as saints, without knowing that we are not hypocrites. You must even see apparent injustice, perfidy, cruelty, emanate from our decisions. You can no more control our operations than you can our intentions. Will you have faith enough to walk with closed eyes upon the brink of an abyss? In the practice of Catholicism, I did so in my childhood, replied Consuelo after a moment's reflection. I opened my heart and gave up the direction of my conscience to a priest whose features I did not see behind the veil of the confessional and whose name in life I did not know. I saw in him only the priesthood. The man was nothing to me. I obeyed the Christ and did not trouble myself about his minister. Do you think that very difficult? Raise your hand now if you persist. Wait, said Consuela. Your reply would decide upon my destiny. But will you permit me to interrogate you once, for the first and the last time? You see, already you hesitate. Already you seek for guarantees elsewhere than in your spontaneous inspiration and in the bounding of your heart towards the idea which we represent. Speak, however. The question you wish to make will enlighten us, respecting the disposition of your mind. This is it. Is Albert initiated into all your secrets? Yes. Without the least restriction? Without the least restriction. And he walks with you? Say rather that we walk with him. He is one of the lights of our council, the purest, the most divine, perhaps. Why did you not tell me this at first? I should not have hesitated a moment. Lead me where you will. Dispose of my life. I am yours, and I swear it. You extend your hand, but upon what do you swear? Upon the image of the Christ which I see here. What is the Christ? The divine thought revealed to humanity. Is that thought entire in the letter of the gospel? I do not believe that it is, but I do believe that it is entire in its spirit. We are satisfied with your answer, and we accept the oath you have just taken. Now we are about to instruct you in your duties towards God and toward us. Learn, therefore, beforehand, 
the three words which are all the secret of our mysteries and which are only revealed to most of the affiliated with so many delays and precautions. You have no need of a long apprenticeship, and yet you will require some reflection to understand their whole extent. Liberty, fraternity, equality. This is the mysterious and profound formula of the work of the invisibles. Is that, in fact, all the mystery? It does not seem to you to be one, but examine the state of societies and you will see that. Two men accustomed to be governed by despotism, inequality, antagonism, it is an entire education, an entire conversion, a whole revelation to come to understand clearly the human possibility, the social necessity and the moral self-denial of this triple precept. Liberty, equality, fraternity. The small number of upright minds and pure hearts who protest naturally against the injustice and the disorder of tyranny seize the secret doctrine at the first step. Their progress in it is rapid, for with them it is only requisite to teach them the processes of application which we have discovered. But for the greater number, with the people of the world, the courtiers and the powerful, Imagine what precaution and discretion are necessary before submitting to their examination the sacred formula of the eternal work. It is necessary to surround it with symbols and evasions. It is necessary to persuade them that it refers only to a fictitious liberty, confined to the exercise of individual thought, of a relative equality, extended only to the members of the association and practicable only in its secret and benevolent assemblies. In fine, to a romantic brotherhood agreed upon between a certain number of persons and limited to temporary services, to some good works, to mutual assistance. For these slaves of custom and prejudice, our mysteries are only the statutes of heroic orders, renewed from ancient chivalry, and offering no attack upon constituted powers, no remedy to the miseries of the people. For them we have only insignificant grades, degrees of frivolous science or of hackneyed antiquity, a series of initiations, the strange rites of which amuse their curiosity without enlightening their minds. They believe they know everything, and they know nothing." Of what use are they, said Consuelo, who listened attentively, to protect the exercise and the freedom of labor of those who do understand and know, replied the initiator. This will be explained to you. Listen first to what we expect from you. Europe, Germany and France especially, is filled with secret societies, subterranean laboratories in which is being prepared a great revolution of which Germany or France will be the crater. We have the key, and we endeavor to have the direction of all those associations, without the knowledge of the greater part of their members, and without any one of them having knowledge of our connection with others. Although our object has not yet been attained, we have succeeded in placing our foot everywhere. And the most eminent among the different associates are with us and second our efforts. We will procure for you an admission into all those holy sanctuaries. 
into all those profane temples, for corruption and frivolity have likewise built their cities. And in some, vice and virtue labor in the same work of destruction, without the evil understanding its association with the good. Such is the law of conspiracies. You will know the secret of the Freemasons, a great brotherhood which, under the most varied forms and with the most different ideas, labors to organize the practice and to spread the notion of equality. You will receive all the degrees of all the rights. The women are admitted to them only by adoption and do not share in all the secrets of the doctrine. We shall treat you as a man. We shall give you all the insignia, all the titles, all the formulas necessary for the relations which we shall cause you to establish with the lodges and for the negotiations with them, which we shall entrust to you, and your profession, your traveling life, your talents, the fascination of your sex, your youth and your beauty, your virtues, your courage, your uprightness and your discretion. Fit you for that part and give us the necessary guarantees. Your past life, the smallest details of which we know, is a sufficient pledge to us. You have voluntarily undergone more trials than the Masonic mysteries could invent, and you have come out from them stronger and more victorious than their adepts from the vain forms intended to try their constancy. Moreover, the wife and the pupil of Albert de Rudolstadt is our daughter, our sister, and our equal. Like Albert, we profess the precept of the divine equality of the man and the woman, but compelled to recognize in the unhappy results of the education of your sex, in its social position and its customs, a dangerous frivolity and capricious instincts. We cannot practice that precept in all its extent. We can trust in only a small number of women, and there are secrets which we shall confide to you alone. The other secret societies of the different nations of Europe will also be open to you by the talisman of our investiture, in order that, through whatever country you pass, you may there find an opportunity to second us and to serve our cause. You will even penetrate, if necessary, into the impure society of the Mopses and into the other mysterious retreats of the gallantry and of the incredulity of the age. You will carry their reform and the idea of a pure and better understood brotherhood. You will not be sullied in your mission by the spectacle of the debauchery of the great any more than you have been by that of the freedom of the stage. You will be a sister of charity to wounded souls. We shall give you moreover the means of destroying those associations which you cannot correct. You will act principally upon women. Your genius and your fame will open to you the gates of palaces. The love of Trank and our protection have already given you the heart and the secrets of an illustrious princess. You will see closely still more powerful personages and will make of them our auxiliaries. The means of attaining this will be the object of private communications and of an entirely special education which you will here receive. In all the courts and in all the cities of Europe towards which you wish to turn your steps, we shall cause you to find friends, associates, brothers to second you, 
powerful protectors to secure you from the dangers of your enterprise. Large sums will be entrusted to you to relieve the misfortunes of our brothers and those of all the unhappy who by means of the signals of distress may invoke the assistance of our order in places where you may be. You will institute among women new secret societies founded by us upon the principles of our own, but adapted in their forms and their composition to the usages and the manners of different countries and different classes. You will endeavor as much as possible to bring about the cordial and sincere union of the great lady and the citizen's wife, of the rich woman and the poor sempstress, of the virtuous matron and the adventurous female artist. Tolerance and benevolence. Such will be the formula softened for the persons of the world of our real and austere formula. Equality, fraternity. You see, at first sight your mission is sweet for your heart and glorious for your life. Still it is not without danger. We are powerful, but treachery may destroy our enterprise and overwhelm you in our disaster. Spandau may not be the last of your prisons, nor the rage of Frederick II, the only royal rage you may have to encounter. Are you prepared for all, and devoted beforehand to the martyrdom of persecution? I am, replied Consuelo. We are certain of it, and if we fear anything, it is not the weakness of your character, but the dejection of your mind." From this moment, we must put you on your guard against the principal disgust attached to your mission. The lower grades of the secret societies, and especially of masonry, are almost insignificant in our eyes and serve us only to try the instincts and the dispositions of the candidates. The greater part never pass those first degrees, in which, as I have already said, vain ceremonies amuse their frivolous curiosity. Into the following grades are admitted only persons who give us hopes. And yet, these are still kept at a distance from the end. They are examined. They are tried. Their souls are probed. They are prepared for a more complete initiation. Or they are given up to an interpretation which they could not pass without danger to the cause and to themselves. That is still only a nursery from which we choose the strong plants, destined to be transplanted into the sacred forest. To the highest grades alone belong the important revelations, and it is by them that you will enter upon the career. But the part of master imposes many duties, and there ceases the charm of curiosity, the intoxication of mystery, the illusion of hope. You have no longer to learn, in the midst of enthusiasm and emotion, that law which transforms the neophyte into an apostle, the novice into a priestess. You have to practice it in instructing others and in seeking to recruit, among the clean and hard and the poor in spirit, Levites for the sanctuary. It is there, poor Consuelo, that you will know the bitterness of hopes deceived and the hard labors of perseverance, when you shall see among so many greedy, curious, and boasting seekers after truth, so few serious, firm, and sincere minds, so few souls worthy of receiving and capable of understanding it. 
for hundreds of children full of vanity and employing the formulas of equality and affecting its appearance, you will hardly find one man penetrated with their importance and courageous in their interpretation. You will be obliged to speak to them in enigmas and to make to yourself a sad jest in deceiving them respecting the fundamentals of the doctrine. The greater part of the princes, whom we enroll under our banner, are in this situation, and, adorned with vain Masonic titles which amuse their foolish pride, serve only to guarantee to us the liberty of our movements and the tolerance of the police. Some, nevertheless, are sincere, or have been so. Frederick, surnamed the Great, and certainly capable of being great, was received as a Freemason before he was king. And at that time, liberty spoke to his heart, equality to his reason. Still we surrounded his initiation with skillful and prudent men, who did not reveal to him the secrets of the doctrine. How we should have repented had they done so. At this moment, Frederick suspects, watches and persecutes another Masonic rite, which has been established at Berlin in competition with the lodge over which he presides, and other secret societies at the head of which Prince Henry, his brother, has placed himself with ardor. And yet Prince Henry, as also the abbess of Quindlinburg, is not, and never will be, more than an initiate of the second degree. We know the princess, Consuelo, and we know that we must never repose entire confidence in them or in their courteous. Frederick's brother and sister suffer from his tyranny and curse it. They willingly conspire against it, but for their own advantage. Notwithstanding the eminent qualities of these two princes, we shall never place the reins of our enterprise in their hands. They conspire, it is true, but they do not know to what a terrible work they lend the support of their name, their fortune, and their credit. They imagine that they labor only to diminish the authority of their master and to paralyze the encroachments of his ambition. The Princess Amelia even carries into her zeal a sort of republican enthusiasm, and she is not the only crowned head whom a certain dream of antique grandeur and philosophic revolution has agitated in these times. All the little sovereigns of Germany learnt Fenelon's Telemachus by heart in their childhood, and now they are fed on Montesquieu, Voltaire, and Helvetius. But they do not go beyond a certain ideal of aristocratic government, wisely balanced, in which they, of right, are to have the first places. You can judge of the logic and good faith of all of them by the strange contrast you have seen in Frederick between maxims and actions, words and deeds. They are no more than copies, more or less obliterated, more or less exaggerated of those models of philosophic tyrants. But as they have not absolute power in their hands, their conduct is less shocking, and people may form illusions respecting the use they would make of that power. We do not allow ourselves to be deceived. We permit these wearied masters, these dangerous friends, to sit upon the thrones of our symbolic temples. They think themselves the pontiffs. They imagine that they hold the key of the sacred mysteries, as formerly the chief of the holy empire, fictitiously chosen grand master of the secret tribunal, was persuaded that he commanded the terrible army of the Frank judges, 
masters of his power, of his designs, and of his life. But while they believe themselves our generals, they serve us as lieutenants, and never before the fatal day marked for their fall, in the book of destiny, will they know that they assist us to labor against themselves. Such is the gloomy and bitter side of our work. It is necessary to make a compromise with certain laws of one's peaceful conscience on opening the soul to our holy fanaticism. Will you have that courage, young priestess of your heart, and candid speech? After all that you have told me, I am no longer permitted to draw back, replied Consuelo, after a moment of silence. A first scruple might lead me into a series of reservations and terrors which would end in cowardice. I have received your austere confidences. I feel that I no longer belong to myself. Alas, yes, I confess it. I shall often suffer at the part with which you invest me, for I have already suffered bitterly at being obliged to deceive King Frederick in order to save friends in danger. Let me blush for the last time with the blush of souls virgin to all deception, and weep for the candor of my ignorant and peaceful youth. I cannot avoid these regrets, but I shall retain no tardy and pusillanimous remorse. I cannot henceforth be the inoffensive and useless child I have formerly been. I am no longer so, since I am placed between the necessity of conspiring against the oppressors of humanity or of betraying its liberators. I have touched the tree of knowledge. Its fruits are bitter, but I shall not throw them from me. To know is a misfortune, but to refuse to act is a crime when we do know what we should do. That is replying with wisdom and courage, returned the initiator. We are satisfied with you. Tomorrow evening we will proceed with your initiation. Prepare yourself during the whole day for a new baptism, for a formidable engagement, by meditation and prayer, by confession even, if your soul is not free from all personal feeling. End of chapter 31